folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and you can use their takeout service for lunch and dinner seven days a week, and on the weekends, breakfast as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk, H-O-Q, Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. All right, again, welcome to the program. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about how Russian Internet trolls may be at it again in the 2020 election. We'll also talk with Bob Gould about climate and militarism. Eddie Morrow is going to join us. We're going to talk about the No Justice, No Peace campaign. And for our farm segment, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. We're going to talk about tomatoes. It'll be our tomato talk time, if you will. All right, but first, in this week's climate report, we're going to take a different angle. Because the most important story on climate right now is the election. You've got to vote. And this is going to surprise some people and maybe even tick a few people off. But don't vote by mail. That's right. Don't vote by mail. Vote at the polls. You can vote at your county auditor's office as well. You know, any weekday beginning in Iowa, at least, any weekday beginning October 5th. Of course, you can also hand deliver your absentee ballot to the county auditor's office. That option is, um, you know, slightly better than mailing in your ballot. But the best thing to do is to vote at the polls on November 3rd and take every possible precaution when you do that. You know, both, you know, against both the coronavirus and against cold weather. Bundle up, wear a mask, wear a shield too if you want. Heck, wear rubber gloves. And if you are at all able, vote on Election Day at your neighborhood precinct polling location. Now, I'm speaking for Iowa. Maybe, it may be a different situation in your state, but it's still important to consider what I'm saying. You know, so I know folks are going to say, Ed, you say everyone with a brain is telling us to vote early. You know, everyone's telling, everyone's telling us to vote early, vote by mail, and you're telling us to wait until Election Day. What's wrong with you? <laughs> okay, well, before I answer that question, and it's a fair question, I, I've got to commend the Iowa Democratic Party. Now, you know, they, they, they're doing, in normal conditions, this would make sense to encourage people to vote by mail. I wouldn't mind seeing a system where we always vote by mail, especially during a pandemic. It makes sense to vote by mail except for extenuating circumstances, which, again, I will get to in a minute. Because I also want to thank the county auditors. I mean, we have uh, 99 counties in Iowa. And interestingly, 63 of them, 63 county auditors are Republicans, 32 are Democrats. What's really fascinating to me is uh, there are 80 women <laughs> and only 19 men. Uh, women outnumber county auditors that are male in this state by four to one. That's, that's incredible. So I, I, think, I think they all do the best they can. I think they're a, a reliable, you know, um, ethical bunch of people. And the fact that the Iowa Legislative Council voted unanimously last week to give auditors permission to begin to open mail-in ballots on the Saturday before Election Day, that will help expedite the process a little bit. Not a lot, but a little. Again, they're not counting the ballots. They're just opening them early. That'll help a little. Again, I also want to mention our postal workers. I have total respect for the men and women in the Postal Service and for the leaders of the American Postal Workers Union. You know, normally voting by mail is a great idea. 
now, again, especially during a pandemic. Uh, but, you know, given that Trump has put this extremely anti-postal service guy, Louis DeJoy, in charge, and he's already been outed for intentionally delaying mail, you know, there could be huge problems with absentee ballots that are caught up in, the, uh, in, in this um, in this system that is now basically being, you know, distorted for political purposes. You know, and, and a note, you know, make no doubt about it, there, there are problems with the Postal Service these days because of what Trump has done. Here's one example, very dear to my heart. Uh, I know stories where cases where people have been mailed baby chicks. Yes, they are mailed to you. We get them every two or three years here in the mail. They're always doing fine, but some cases now they've been dead because the mail service has been delayed. Anyway, that's an aside. You know, the, but the mailing in your ballot, it involves a bigger problem than the U.S. Postal Service. It involves even a bigger problem than county auditors' offices counting the ballots because win or lose, Trump will not concede defeat. You know, more Democrats as of now are planning to vote by mail than Republicans. And if that holds, uh, Republicans will prevail on Election Day, certainly in Iowa, probably in most other swing states, maybe in many other states. So if you vote by mail, your ballot could be sitting at either the post office or the county auditor's office for days, maybe even weeks, as Trump declares victory over and over and over again. Yeah, I've been warning about this for some time. It's not just spare, uh, scary speculation. It's, it's pretty much a given that President Trump will call himself the winner on Election Day. And after that, on November 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, repeatedly, ad nauseum, Donald Trump will say he is the winner. He'll never, he'll never concede defeat. And he has his army of allies, especially the radical right talking heads like Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham, they're all going to be saying the same thing over and over and over again. You know, and just look at, look at the snippets, uh, just some of the snippets of what Trump has been saying lately. So back in August at the Republican National Convention, he said, the only way they, meaning Democrats, can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. Now, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth, at least in the impressionable minds of way too many people. And during the last couple of months or so, I can, you know, I can't recall where I read this, but, but Trump has spoken out against mail-in voting an average of nearly four times a day. So Trump and the RNC, the Republican National Committee, they're, they're fighting to take every crooked advantage. Of course, it helps their cause that uh, back in 2013, the um, 1965 Voting Rights Act was repealed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, well, a, a key component of that act was repealed. And that, that has led to all kinds of voter suppression techniques. And, you know, and Republicans are doing it. They, they're purging voter rolls. They're tightening rules on provisional ballots. They're passing voter ID laws. That happened here in Iowa. They're banning ballot drop boxes. They've reduced eligibility to vote by mail in some places. Um, they're discarding mail-in ballots with technical flaws. We've seen that happening. They're outlawing ballots postmarked by Election Day that arrived too late. You know, and, and in I Iowa, they're, they're suing county auditors who tried to expedite the process by including information helpful to the voters. So, you know, oh, and of course, I would be remiss in not saying that they're also gerrymandering congressional districts like you wouldn't believe. So, 
If the prediction is about mail-in voting holdup, you know, Trump will jump ahead on election night, possibly way, way ahead based on, you know, in-person returns. But over the next few days and weeks after election day, his lead, in theory, will slowly erode as tens of millions of mail-in votes are counted. But as, uh, as the Atlantic's um, Barton Gelman wrote, this is worth reading, quote, the longer Trump succeeds in keeping the vote count in doubt, the more pressure state legislators will feel to act before the safe harbor deadline expires. And, well, what's that about? Okay, so let me quote another article from The Guardian. Quote, the Republicans are reportedly considering the possibility of asking state legislatures to ignore the will of the popular vote and appoint electors favorable to the president. Now, that could happen if enough states fail to certify who won by, I believe the date is December 14th. And that could happen if you've got all these millions and millions, tens of millions of ballots that are sitting in county auditor's offices or in the mail, or, you know, or they're fighting over what happened to them, whether they're legitimate or not. That could happen. And, then, and some experts are saying, well, they, they can't do that. That's, that's, that's against the law. Well, okay, we're talking about Donald Trump. Um, doing something against the law is part of his nature. It's part of his mojo. It's how he rolls. So, um, again, the other possibility, of course, is Trump could, um, could rely on the Supreme Court to decide the election for much as it did with George Bush versus Al Gore in 2000. So, you know, the bottom line is if you live in swing states like Iowa, if at all possible, you should vote at the polls on Election Day. I know you're hearing different things from the Democratic Party, from lots of uh, nonprofit groups, from, from good government agencies and whatnot, entities, but I think they're wrong. Don't, you know, Trump is poisoning the well when it comes to mail-in votes. You know, and I can't speak for other states, and I know some states have voting machines whose integrity is questionable, and that adds a whole different level of risk and confusion for those who are voting at the polls. And we don't have that problem in Iowa. We, we still use paper ballots because, you know, I, Iowa doesn't do well with um, technology uh, involving elections. You know, see that app that the IDP used earlier this year and the Iowa caucus meltdown for details about that. Bottom line is, no matter where you live, the problem is that if the election drags out, for whatever reason, it strengthens Donald Trump's contention that mail-in voting is flawed. So my advice, put on a mask, put on a shield, wear rubber gloves if you want to, and take a winter coat in case it's cold and you have to stand in line outside, but plan to vote at the polls on election day. That's the surest way for your vote to be counted on time, when it matters most, before the disinformation campaign against mail-in ballots accelerates to an even more damaging level by both Trump and his surrogates in the talk media world. Folks, um, that's my advice. I hope you take it. Uh, I'm using it. <laughs> I will be voting at the polls. Uh, back in a minute on the uh, Fallon Forum, we'll be talking about the uh, Russian internet troll activity, which was damaging as I'll get out in the 2016 election and may indeed be another factor here this time around again. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. 
Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Back to the Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, thanks to our local business partners, including uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and you can get lunch and dinner there seven days a week through their takeout service. You can also get breakfast through their takeout service on weekends. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis with, uh, what, 30-plus years of experience uh, that's specializing in cutting-edge, creative, environmentally friendly designs, including super-insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so uh, later in the program, we'll be talking about the uh, intersection of climate and militarism. We'll be talking about the, uh, the uh, intersection of racial profiling, climate... Trump's tax returns and the election. Yeah, we're going to roll all that into one convo, and we'll also be talking about tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, we like to mix it up a bit. Tomatoes, very, very important part of the revolution, tomatoes. But speaking of revolutions, um, I want to talk about Russia now. And I want to, I want to pull from a book I'm reading, Blowout, by Rachel, Rachel Maddow. I don't think Rachel Maddow, I've not known, I don't believe she's ever written a book. She does say somewhere in here, don't ever let me do this again. <laughs> and having written a book, I can relate to that. I never want to write a book again. But um, it is a good book. And it's in Maddow's, you know, humorous but really, you know, deep digging style. She really gets into stuff. It's about the oil industry and about how, you know, Russia basically, their one big commodity to move forward, to move their economy forward is oil and natural gas. And their one big partner in doing that, well, they have several big partners, but the biggest one, ExxonMobil. But um, to, bring this, to bring this forward to the upcoming election, I want to reflect on what Maddow has to say about Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. She points out that, uh, I quote, after two years of investigation by the FBI and the Office of Special Counsel and a bunch of congressional committees and excellent reporters, presumably including her. Um, she says, quote, we know how the Russians did it. We know what they did in 2016. We know how they did it, how they mucked with our electioneering in 2016 in what the special counsel's final report called, quote, sweeping and systemic fashion. We know that agents inside Unit 26165 and Unit 74455 of Russia's main intelligence directorate of the general staff how they, quote, used a variety of means to hack the email accounts of the Hillary Clinton for President campaign and its chairman and to infiltrate and then monitor and infect 
the computer networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the DNC. We know from federal indictments they were able to capture keystrokes entered by Democratic Party officials and employees and to take screenshots from their computers. Okay, now this stuff is complicated. And um, honestly, it's kind of brilliant. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, Russia, yeah, I, I, when I was a kid, I would, I would really admire Russians for their ability to dominate chess. I like chess. I, I still like it. I don't have time for it anymore, but I liked it back then. And the Russians were to be admired. And they had much better, um, a much better uh, control of their emotional demeanor than, say, Bobby Fischer. But um, they're brilliant on a number of levels. And here's more of what Mano writes. And I quote again, we know that Russian military intelligence, intelligence agents use fictitious American sounding names like Alice Donovan, Jason Scott, Richard Gingrey to drive traffic to the leaked material. That's the material leaked from the Hillary Clinton campaign. We also know that the Kremlin run trolls at the Internet Research Agency were actively spewing incendiary, incendiary provocations and content designed to promote Donald Trump leading up to and all the way through the 2016 general election campaign and then through the start of the Trump administration. Content created by the Internet Research Agency and its brethren is known to have reached well over 100 million Americans in the election season. It's, it's overwhelming. It's, and some of the names that, uh, that Maddow includes in this book, uh, some of the names of these phony Facebook pages created by Russian trolls working out of St. Petersburg, um, all invaders. And that one came with um, scary graphics of frightening looking Muslim people. Uh, another one was called Being Patriotic or Blacktivist and Heart of Texas. Heart of Texas is a great one because it's kind of about seceding from the Union if things don't go the right way, meaning if Donald Trump doesn't win. So I, you know, each of these, uh, each of these accounts got you know, millions of shares. Um, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, you know, and, and they actually bought, so Facebook uh, did gain some, they bought Facebook ads, you know, because, hey, if you really want your stuff to go out there, buy some Facebook ads. Um, Maddow, go, Maddow goes on to point out that, quote, trolls pummeled the Democratic nominee, Clinton, with paid advertisements, um, such as, quote, join our Hashtag Hillary Clinton for prison 2016 <laughs> or Hillary Clinton doesn't deserve the black vote or Ohio wants Hillary for prison or Hillary is Satan and her crimes and lies had proved just how evil she is. And part of the part of the intent, as Maddow points out, is to suppress the African-American vote regarded, you know, by many, by certainly by Joe Biden as the uh, core, you know, one of the core constituencies of the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, that may have been somewhat effective. You know, again, part of it was, uh, you know, the, the, the goal was to, to convince pe people not to vote at all. Hillary Clinton's not, not really concerned about black Americans, so don't even bother to vote. Here's one quote. We cannot resort to the lesser of two devils. Then we'd surely be better off without voting at all. So, I mean, between, you know, making it seem that Clinton was not friendly to the core constituencies that she needed to turn out to vote and making more and more Americans afraid of, say, Muslims, you could say that they were pretty darn effective. 
Americans, uh, again, this is uh, also from Maddow's book, Americans can do and argue what, whether, absent the big Russian push against the Democratic presidential nominee, um, that Trump would have won. Maybe he wouldn't have. Uh, personally, <clears throat> I, I think it's probably likely that he did win because of Putin's help. But that's in here, and this is, a, this is the last thing I want to read you from Maddow. Quote, Vladimir Putin succeeded probably beyond his wildest imaginings in his highest real aim. And that is the goal seems to be not domination, but chaos. That's according to longtime Moscow correspondent Susan B. Glasser, who also writes, quote, the objective is not to destroy us, but to weaken and confuse us. And that has certainly been the case. Um, Again, as Maddo points out, Putin and his techno-warriors figured out what differences and disagreements and prejudices were corroding the health and cohesion of American society. They found the most ragged faults and fissures in our democracy. Immigration, race, religion, economic injustice, mass shootings. Then they poured infectious waste into them. They used traditional media, social media, and disinformation to try to make citizens of differing experiences and viewpoints hate and distrust each other as much as possible. They made public discourse and discussion as evil and mean-spirited and alienating as possible. And they created miserable experiences, sorry, miser miserable expectations for coarseness and cruelty and blatant dishonesty in politics and civic life. They did that, folks. They did it at very little cost, um, very effectively. And there's no reason to believe that they're not doing it again right now. I mean, the amazing thing is most of these folks who are supporting Trump probably hate communism. And I'm not a fan of communism either. But here is, here is the guy who came out of formerly communist Russia, who, who, who actually, if anything, uh, Vladimir Putin has become even a stronger, more centralized, more dominant dictator than any of those who served during, the, during the, uh, the years of the Soviet Union. He's probably worse than any of them, maybe except for Lenin. But, you know, here, and he, here he is, manipulating our election. Um, and on behalf of somebody he sees as an ally, he likes Donald Trump. The person who Donald Trump, the, the, the political philosophy who Donald Trump's supporters most most despise communism and allegedly, you know, the dictators that rise out of a communist or fascist mentality. This, this is the guy who's Trump, who's behind Trump. He's, he's sowing the kind of discord that's creating falsehoods, illusions, disengagement that is allowing uh, Donald Trump to, I, I believe, that allowed him to gain power and, is try, and, is, and may, it may well help him maintain power. Again, there's so many other factors in play. You can't just say Russia is responsible. But gosh, they've had a big influence. They've had as big an influence as any super PAC, uh, any grassroots organization on the ground in the U.S. working towards some outcome in the election. And, you know, Maddow's book lays it out. The special counsel's report lays it out. The information is there. It's just tough for people to find the time and the, and the energy to read and to process and to understand what's going on. But make no mistake about it. Vladimir Putin is not done messing with our electoral system. He's not done trying to sow chaos and discord 
and to get us to distrust and hate and despise each other and to draw those lines, you are bad, I am good, you know, red is evil, blue is good, vice versa. He's not done with that. Again, I think Maddow's right. I think the, the, the success he achieved in 2016 was beyond what he imagined was possible. He had to have enjoyed a very healthy shot of vodka to celebrate that moment. And there's no doubt that he's doing it again. Folks, we'll be back in a minute with uh, hopefully some, uh, well, some more serious conversation. But we'll wrap it up with some feel-good stuff at the end of this program here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to our local business partners and nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, again, welcome back to the program. Later in the show, Eddie Morrow is going to join us. We're going to talk about the organization that he has helped put together called No Justice and No Peace. Within the context of that, we're going to look at racial profiling, the climate crisis, and the incredible news around Donald Trump's tax returns. We'll also be talking later in the program with Kathy Burns about tomatoes. Yeah, the history and current practice of tomatoes. But first, I want to welcome to the program Bob Gould. Bob, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Bob is uh, with the National Physicians for Social Responsibility, a group I have a lot of respect for, and a group that has done a really good job at connecting the dots between the climate crisis and militarism. Bob, I know you've done a lot of work on this and you've got a lot of thoughts on it. So give us an overview of your perspective on what that confluence looks like. What is that connection between the climate crisis and militarism? Sure, and it, it takes a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, there are a lot of, there are many connections and uh, relate very strongly to uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility or PSR's uh, work on what we regard as the uh, twin existential uh, threats facing us at this point, which include uh, nuclear weapons, uh, which we've been working on for over 60 years as well as uh, global warming, which we uh, expanded our program to embrace uh, as a major threat to humanity and all other 
forms of life in the 1990s. And our work on nuclear weapons has uh, continued to work on, uh, on abolishing them. But also, for many of us, we see that it's the use or threatened use of nuclear weapons, whether we're talking about the strategies of use or uh, the budgets that they entail, are in many ways a subset of uh, U.S. And, and from that standpoint, global militarism was, which is what we regard as the excessive use of uh, military of military force, of which nuclear weapons are the highest form of violence. In fact, uh, Paul Nitze uh, articulated um, uh, the use or possible use of nuclear weapons in his uh, famous uh, exposition on escalation dominance about uh, six decades ago, basically saying that at every level of violence, nuclear weapons uh, offer the ultimate level of violence in order to carry out our military and foreign policy objectives. And I know since the, uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's been you know, a lot less public concern about nuclear weapons. And uh, that, I think that, that lack of concern has been unwarranted. These are still, this is still a major existential threat. And as we discussed with um, a former uh, intern with PSR a couple weeks ago, Liberty Potter, we discussed the, uh, the next generation of nuclear weapons, hypersonic weapons, which um, gives one great concern. And uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's hard not, it's, when you think about it, and I guess a lot of people really don't want to think about it. It's hard to blame people for not wanting to think about this stuff. But, but when you think about it, it's... Um, you know, it's it, it it's troubling, but I, I think one thing I want to get people to more to continue to focus on is how do how does climate change and this the existence of nuclear weapons and the threat of militarism how are those related? Are they two separate threats? Is there a connecting point that ties them together? Well, I, I think there are many uh, connecting points. I mean, given the fact that our drive to have uh, nuclear weapons, although less warheads than decades ago to be able to exert uh, uh, military power and military force that we do throughout the world, much of our military posture remains, particularly in the Middle East, to secure the supply of uh, fossil fuels that, on the one hand, uh, offer our military the fuel to uh, extend its global uh, dominance, and, of course, the... Um, the very articulation of our military forces to secure such uh, areas for uh, domination themselves are to dominate the very fuels that uh, are going to be the planetary end for us, uh, given global warming. So, you know, for much of the post-World War II period, in many ways, our own economy has very much centered around the fact that we have controlled access overall, compared with other geopolitical powers, to Middle Eastern oil. Many of all of the uh, states that we work with, and I'm thinking of the Saudis as, as, as a prime example, have pumped the oil that, of course, drive the global warming crisis in return for, um, you know, the, the petrodollars that they earn for pumping the oil themselves are used to buy the arms to additionally create the situations of instability and warfare that in turn require more oil, cause more environmental destruction, right. and to displace 
benefit of tens of millions of people through this consistent warfare. And isn't that so changing? Isn't that changing a little bit though? Thing going on. Bob, isn't that changing? Me? Isn't that changing a little bit because uh, we've got two two things going on. One, we've got Russia, which, in my opinion, is uh, is a, is is a, is a terribly undemocratic society right now. It's basically uh-huh. run by a dictator named Vladimir Putin. And uh, you've got Russia, though, with huge stores of gas and oil in Siberia, and they are tapping into that with the help of ExxonMobil, as we talked about earlier on this program. And at the same time, you've got this vast expansion of gas and oil production here in the U.S. that has now made the U.S. uh, the largest producer of those resources in the world and soon to be the largest exporter. So the Mideast is becoming less and less important in the global petroleum scheme. but that doesn't mean we're not, but we're seeing problems and tensions develop elsewhere that are of, of, of equal concern. I mean, talk about Russia, big oil and gas reserves, and a huge nuclear arsenal as well. Yeah, well, these are, you know, I mean, clearly with the collapse of the global economy with COVID, there's been a real fall in oil, oil prices and an overall glut in uh, oil as well as natural gas, particularly which has impacts on the um, the future, at least the short term future, of uh, the fra- the fracking industry. Nonetheless, this sort of contention between the United States and uh, Russia and China and uh, other countries over control of the Arctic that's melting now is another place of very intense geopolitical contention that could lead to warfare between these contending states and particularly um, among a number of the powers so contending, could always be a flashpoint for nuclear conflict as so, well. So, yeah, yeah, I know we've got great concerns about how the, how the, how the military uh, is being impacted and is impacting climate change. On the one hand, then you've also got, um, you've, you've got spokespeople for the military who are saying, yeah, we get, we get that climate change is a problem. We're trying to become more climate-friendly. We're designing our facilities, our, our, our tents and things to be run with, you know, wind or solar power. You know, they're, they're trying to, <laughs> there's kind of a greenwashing going on within the military that, you know, finds some support among environmental groups, environmental leaders, um, who send, then seem to be able to ignore the reality that, that there's this, you know, that, that, that the military is one of the reasons why we've been seeing this drive toward greater and greater climate chaos. Well, I think your point about greenwashing in this case is is spot on. And uh, Michael Clare, who's uh, is I think a great contributor to the writings on this area, who wrote Blood for Oil maybe about two decades ago, illustrating right. some of the interconnections of our global economy, the arms for oil, and all of those issues. Uh, recently wrote a book, All Hell Breaking Loose which illustrated on the one hand that the Pentagon, as opposed to climate deniers on our own uh, administration, is certainly on top of the issue in terms of how climate change could negatively impact U.S. military deployments, for example. So, for example, a number of years ago, a major hurricane sweeping through Florida destroyed about $5.5 billion worth of some of our own advanced aircraft that are stationed in vulnerable coastal areas for deployment uh, throughout the world. But when you really look at the budgets being spent by the Pentagon or the Department of Energy on so-called alternative technologies, yeah, they, they have spent some 
stuff there, and they have some of their model programs of such and such a, a destroyer is more working off of biofuels than the usual petroleum products. But overall, there's been very little investment to even make this military fleet green at all. Yeah. And if I look at the, and if we look at the Department of Energy uh, budgets, uh, I can look at uh, two levels. One is the overall program that the Department of Energy is now involved in to spend anywhere between 1.2 to 2.0 trillion dollars over the next 30 years to modernize our nuclear weapons arsenal. And that's at a cost of uh, four to six million dollars yeah. every hour, which has significant yeah. impact if we want to fund a green Bob, deal. Bob, I, I got to run to a break here. I got to run to a break yep. here, Bob. I, I, I do want to get the last word on piggybacking on what you just said. If we're going to pay mm -hmm. for, if we're going to pay for the things that need to happen to address climate change, the best source of revenue is going to be from the hugely bloated military budget. Um, Bob, I got to run to a break. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Bob Gould with Physicians for Social Responsibility. Yep. Bob, thanks for joining us. We'll be back in a minute. Eddie Morrow is going to join us, a longtime uh, commentator on various uh, matters of political interest, social justice climate, and we're going to be talking about the Trump tax return revelation back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Later in the show, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about tomatoes. Hey, before we launch into our conversation with Eddie Morrow, I want to tell you thanks to a couple of the local businesses that make this program possible. Thank you to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and you can also get lunch and dinner there seven days a week using takeout. Their takeout service is also available for breakfast on weekends. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. That's Des Moines' premier jazz club and now open for appropriately socially distanced concerts at the facility on Walnut Street just south of the Sculpture Park. You can also catch those concerts on live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Again, welcome back to the program, folks. Uh, with me for this segment of our conversation, Eddie Morrow. Eddie, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Ed, for having me. Great to hear from you. And you started a group not too long ago called No Justice, No Peace. Tell us what that's about. Well, and as you know, there's all kinds of uh, things going on around uh, uh, the country this year, um, whether that's uh, the COVID pandemic, whether it's been uh, social, racial uh, injustice in our communities at the hands of law enforcement and, and 
um, you know, within other um, parts of our uh, um, society. Um, what we're seeing in, for voting rights and an election coming up, what we're seeing in climate change and the crisis that's out there. And they all intersect um, with justice and peace. Um, and shortly after, uh, as you know, I ran for uh, the United States Senate in the primary. And shortly after that, got together with a, a group of folks um, uh, that were part of that campaign and some others that really liked the messaging that we had. Um, we decided we wanted to continue to, to uh, elevate voices and um, talk about the issues that were important to us. Um, and so we talk about health care, you talk about education, you talk about housing, you talk about daycare and the economy, you talk about the climate crisis. All of them relate to justice and peace initiatives. So now when, when that, sometimes when people hear the expression, no justice, no peace, what they what they hear is, well, if we, you know, if we don't give you the justice you want, you're not going to leave us. You're not going to give us any peace. We're going to expect turbulence and rioting and looting. That's what some people, when some people hear that, that's what they think. What can you say to assure people that's the furthest thing from your intention? Um, well, that is the furthest thing from our intention. Our, our, what we're trying to say is without justice, without economic justice and environmental justice and justice when it comes to health care and education and housing, there can't be peace in our in our uh, political system in our country the way that we really uh, think it should be fulfilled. Um, what our framers had, had aimed for initially, and what we've worked so hard to climb to um, over decades and decades, and, and we've actually seen a, um, a slide backwards here in, in this year um, relative to, to racial justice, and we've seen uh, slides backwards in, in other ways for a number of years relative against uh, healthcare and education. Um, and housing and uh, our climate and environment. Yeah. And one of the biggest stories, of course, this week is the uh, tax returns of Donald Trump. Somehow the New York Times uh, was able to get a couple decades worth of those tax returns. And the, um, the I mean, you talk about justice. Well, it's hard to read a summary of what came out in those tax returns and not think, wow, talk about injustice. So I don't know whether that's something that's Again, it's so recent this week. I'm not sure it's been able to found its found its way find its way into the into the uh, you know into the agenda that you and others with no justice, no peace are working on. But it seems like I mean, the 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 information. Of course, you know Trump's base is always going to just be enamored with whatever he says and does. But this looks like it could be fairly damaging to the president in terms of his impact leading up to the election. But it also seems like it might you know, support the causes that you and others address. We do have a very distinct lack of justice in the society. Here's an example of the, the most powerful person in the U.S., the president of the U.S., paying only 750 bucks in federal income taxes in 2016 and in 2017, and in many years paying nothing at all. Um, yeah, how do, how do you see this playing out both in terms of your work and the election? So... Um it's a great question, and, and, and the, the, the drama just continues to um, uh, manifest itself on a, on a daily basis with this administration. But without justice, we can't have peace. Um, and and that's, that justice starts at the highest levels of our federal government. It starts at the, the federal administration, it starts with our U.S. Senate and Congress, and, and trickles all the way down to our, our municipal um, uh, elected officials and and those that uh, are empowered um, uh, through government means. And maybe it also starts um, with the tax code, a tax code well, that's, that, well, that's fair. 
Well, so so we can argue about the tax code, and we need to have arguments about that because it is not fair. And it's another another example of where we don't have justice. Um, uh, but uh, at a higher level, with this particular instance, might be he might, you know, if you follow the tax code, then he has nothing to hide. But I think all along, and I I talked about this even back in the primary campaign campaign when we were out there. His, his biggest um, Achilles heel is this issue that's now coming up. Um, he was he was able to hide behind everything else that he's done, um, but if it comes out that he's truly a fraud, mm-hmm. which is what this start, which is what this article kind of alludes to, and as it continues to come out, and obviously he's going to try to say it's fake news, and Rush Lindahl is going to say it's, there, there's nothing to do with it. Right, they've um, already they've already I, said that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I thought all along this was the um, a key issue out there. Um, okay, that, that really painted a light on who this person was. And how everything that's come out of his policies uh, um, is wrapped around it. Well, I guess there's two questions here. One is, did, you know, did Trump deceive the IRS in order to get this, in one case, $73 million tax refund one year? Did he deceive the IRS when he claimed $70,000 for a haircut or for, for his hair care that one year? Uh, did he deceive the IRS when he paid only 750 bucks and then nothing in many other years? Or is the tax code actually, did he actually comply with the laws, the rules and regulations, the, the nuances of the tax code? In which case, we've got a bigger problem. <laughs> we've got a tax code that is allowing this kind of behavior. Either way, you know, he could be in big trouble because it's going to be hard to go to your, your white blue collar base and say, hey, you know, I know that you make, those of you making $18,000 a year paid more in federal taxes than I did in 2016, 2017. Because that's 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 the cutoff. If you're paying, making eighteen grand, which is hardly anything, you're paying seven hundred and sixty bucks in federal taxes, and he paid seven hundred and fifty. So I didn't. Right. I mean, so I guess my question is, what is 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 the problem? Or maybe maybe it doesn't matter. Does it matter that this is an issue of a question of whether the tax code is fair, or whether you know the tax code is not fair? In <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, is whether or not Trump lying about how we use the tax code relevant. So uh, I think there's a lot of things to unpackage there, and this all just kind of came out. But here, here's three things to think about. Um, if he used the tax code uh, uh, lawfully, um, we already know the tax code is not fair. We already know there's a grave injustice. Right. Um, again, we talk about no justice and no peace. There's a grave justice in, in the haves and have-nots, who's right. able to shape the tax code to their advantage. And we're seeing a, you know, a widening of the disparity um, of wealth between uh, those at the top and, and those in the middle and the bottoms. Even with COVID, it's it's been expanded upon it, and and and, and communities of color in particular. Um, so that there, there's one thing. Uh, the second thing is he very likely um, probably uh, cheated on his deductions, and you know, we see that with with the hair deduction and things like that. I think there's already evidence in that he did some gifting to some of his uh, uh, children and used that as a tax write-off. You can't do that. I think the worst thing for him, and that's why he won't release these taxes, why he's fighting tooth and nail, I think he has two sets of tax returns. I think he has a set that he's given to the IRS um, that's an audit, and I think he has a set that he's given to lenders and banks and others that are not the same, um, which is uh, big-time fraud. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's definitely yeah. illegal. No matter how weak the tax code might be, that's definitely yeah. illegal. And the only yeah. way to know that is he needs to release his tax returns. Now he keeps saying well, that he's he, under audit, and, and you know he, he could use that excuse until the, the cows come in. Well, he, um, and he's using it. But uh, the fact of the matter is he can release his taxes even but, under but, audit because they already have his taxes. But yeah, he doesn't have to now because the New York Times did that for us. 
Well, they didn't, they didn't give us all the nitty gritty details. So, okay. you know, they've given us some. They've given us enough snippets to um, elevate the conversation and make him def- try to defend it. We still don't see his tax returns per se that were filed with the IRS. Um, if we had all those, and then the game would be over. We would, he couldn't he couldn't uh, you know lie about him anymore because he'd be right there for everybody to see and then comment. On. One thing I don't know, and maybe you don't know either, Eddie, but I'll ask you: Do you know how the New York Times was able to procure as much information as they got? I you know uh, I'm sure they they have sources that they've really worked really hard on to get those out. Assuming that they did all that through yeah. ethical uh, um, uh, channels, and, and they wouldn't have released them without doing that. But uh, they've been digging for a long time to get them any way that they can. So, um, quick final question for you, Eddie: How does how does all this impact the upcoming election? Doesn't it? Doesn't. Mm-mm. Okay. So again, uh, Ronald Reagan was referred to as the Teflon president, and it looks like um, Donald Trump has even a greater shield of Teflon yeah. if he can withstand so, this. Well, we're just, you know, it's another conversation for another day, but the, the, the division in this country right now is so great and so strong um, that there's hardly anything that that guy can do right now that uh, um, people will turn on him for. What, um, what about shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, as he said he could do and get away with? I think a, I think a number of people, including uh, uh, some of those people on, on Fox News and others, would, would defend it, that he was justified for some reason. They would always, they're always finding a reason. Um, uh, to, um, uh, to to defend this person. And yeah. they're doing it for a number of reasons. Ed. Yeah. They're doing it to protect their own self-interest, their own uh, pet projects, um, uh, their, their, their own uh, profitability with their own programs that they're doing. Whatever that is, they all have a motive for doing it. That's why U.S. Senate couldn't turn it, its back on him mm. when it should have. It's why um, you know a lot of leaders out there across the country can't do it. It's why Joni Ernst uh, won't do it, or Chuck Grassley, or Kim Reynolds. Um, uh, they're all protecting their self-interest. It's the yeah. shame that uh, our, our country and, and those that are out there fighting for justice and peace for the people that are really vulnerable um, can't have that, that, uh, that justice uh, heard uh, because of this predicament we're in. And that's probably a discussion for another day because yeah. we've got a lot of work to do. And we've got to run to a break. Uh, Eddie, I really want to thank you for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Eddie Morrow with No Justice, No Peace. Eddie, thanks for your work and thanks for joining us. NoJusticePack.org. Go check it out. And thanks, Ed, so much for having me. Today. All right. Hey, folks, when we come back, uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. We're going to shift to a slightly lighter conversation, although a very red conversation. Tomatoes. It's tomato time. We're going to be talking about the history of tomatoes, growing them in the Midwest and elsewhere. And yet, remember, the season is not over. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. 
like potatoes, and I like potato. You like tomato, and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Oh, let's call the whole thing off. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Thanks to our business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Lunch and supper these days, of course, through takeout, seven days, five days a week. On the weekends as well, you get breakfast. Breakfast through takeout at Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's, again, neighborhood grocery store and a great place for most meals. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks to uh, Kathy Burns for joining us for the final segment of our conversation today. And yeah, we're going to lighten it up a little bit. Actually, we're going to turn it a deep, dark red with no <laughs> political connotations. We're going to talk tomatoes. It's tomato time, folks. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we've been harvesting a lot of varieties of tomatoes. And uh, strangely, one of our varieties has just come into season. Brandywine. Brandywines. And, and I measured one before we started the program. It was about four and a half inches in diameter. That's that's a hefty tomato. That really is a nice tomato. So. And that particular plant is producing dozens of them, I believe. Yeah. I know. Um, I recently read a book called A History of Food in 100 Recipes by William Sidwell, British guy. And it got me really uh, excited to, to learn a little bit more of the history of tomatoes. I, I, want, I want to ask, what does a British guy know about cooking, anyway? Now. <laughs> teasing I, the I, Irishman, <laughs> teasing the English, sorry. That's right. it's, it's obligatory. I got to do it. I got to do it. I've made those jokes, right. too. But um, it's it's really interesting how, how short a time, and you, th you think of culinary history, and this book traces culinary history from a cave drawing of somebody putting together something with grain and, and water oh. and making a bread type thing. I think you were telling me a Big Mac on a and, cave wall. And it goes through all the, all the <laughs> centuries, and how little in recent history uh, tomatoes have been in culinary use. But first of all, the name of the fruit. Mm. Um, Spanish, I presume? Well, as kind of an Aztec. Aztec, so even the, better. The people who wanted to con conquer the the Aztecs, not or the Spanish, right? And then, but yeah, the, the Spanish. <laughs> let's cut to the chase. The Spanish practiced their genocide tactics on yeah. the, on the Aztecs. Right. Yeah. I think the original um, in the language by the Aztecs, the word was tomatl, t o m a t l, something like that. Okay. And then uh, the Spanish changed it to tomat. English tomato. So, so tomatoes don't come from Italy, then. They come from Mexico, essentially. Yes. Modern-day Mexico. Yeah. Wow. Reportedly, Central and South, South America, or what's now called Central and mm -hmm. South America. Nice. And when tomatoes first arrived in Europe, people didn't know what to do with them, and they were, they were afraid because they were part of the nightshade family. Yeah. Yeah, nightshades. And Deadly stuff. Some of them. Parts of some of them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, the, uh, the, the Spanish explorers did take tomatoes back to Spain, and they didn't actually make their way into common use in um, French or Italian cooking till the mid-17th century. Mid-17th century. And we think of tomatoes as a very Italian thing, really, I think. Yeah. So let's jump ahead mm -hmm. to, to now, fall of 2020, in the Midwest or 
many, many places in the U.S. on a similar clock. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think they're done with tomatoes. They, they, had, they had their tomato rush this summer. They're done. But, you know, gosh, there's so many opportunities for continued tomato love through at least the end of October, maybe into November in our part of the country. So... Well, and we just made a big batch of sauce again this morning. Well, not not big by some standards, two quarts, but all with all with mm-hmm. Amish paste. No, all with brandy wine. Brandy wine. Oh, yeah. brandy wine. Oh, yeah. I I've been I've been mixing up Amish. Yeah. Paste well, we have so many different oh. types; it's hard to keep them all straight. But the nice thing about tomatoes is you can save the heirloom seeds from any tomato that's ten feet apart from another variety. Mm-hmm. You don't need huge isolation distances like you do for example with peppers mm-hmm. or onions mm-hmm. uh, tomatoes it's really about 10 feet is ideal so yeah but so that, that's really important as you're as you're making your tomato sauce or your salsa or whatever you're doing save some seeds get your best tomato cut it in half save some seeds <laughs> that's right um nutritionally tomatoes help us not get scurvy in the winter because you know, we have no source of oranges i've been wondering why i've been able to avoid scurvy all these years <laughs> vitamin c and I'm, I'm uh, citing Healthline here. Also, they are chock full of lipocene, and that's been that's an antioxidant linked to many health benefits, including reduced heart disease and possibly some cancer prevention. And the source of vitamin C, as we said, potassium, folate, and vitamin K. So don't stop growing tomatoes if you think you're done. If you haven't already taken your garden out, don't do it because there's time to get those tomatoes to ripen. And even if they don't, guess what? You can pick them green and still make something of them at the end of the season. We, we like to. We, we, we make tomato sauce from a whole mix of tomatoes. But sometimes if we have a big enough supply, we like to make one batch of, say, brandy wine. Tomorrow we're going to do a batch. Mm-hmm. Or it'll probably be two or three quarts, maybe a gallon a batch of Siciliana Rosa. It's fun. And it's really, it's, here's your 30-second tutorial. Uh, wash the tomatoes, <laughs> cut out the core in any bad spots, throw them in a hot pot of boiling water for 60 seconds or less, throw them in cold water, take the skins off, throw them in a big pot, mash them up, and then cook them on low heat for the rest of the day. <laughs> Start this early in the morning because it might take you all day. But stir them. And then Set make sure. Timer. And, and I know here's the, probably the biggest po- uh, point of contention is some people think you really need to boil those jars. Uh, you need to um, you need to you cook them in and uh, give them a hot boiling bath for 15 to 20 minutes. You know, I we don't do that. Um, and, and maybe this is regarded as irresponsible by some, but we've never had trouble. We make sure the jars are. Coming straight out of boiling water. Right. They're the lids, sterilized. Yeah, they're sterilized the lid and they're hot. The sauce is hot. I mean literally boiling hot. We dunk the funnel into the boiling water to Everything's sterilize hot. it. Everything's sterilized going into that. Everything jar. goes into that boiling water except our hands. Right. <laughs> and and then uh and they, they, they keep we've we've never had trouble. And I don't know anybody else who has that trouble too. But again, if you're concerned, do the hot do the fifteen to twenty minute boiling you know, boiling uh, boil bath in, yep. in either a regular canner or a pressure canner. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We just haven't found the need to. Um, colors of tomatoes are fun. Yeah. And you mentioned we get, have a lot of varieties. We have some green zebras. We have some yellow azoishkas. The That's most a Russian fun, variety. That's the most fun tomato name the to preferred, say. The preferred tomato of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Shoot. And, uh, and sometimes we, we even get a little silly. We make an entire batch of sauce that's green. It looks a little odd on the plate, but it's right. fun. It's fun to do. And if you mix those green tomatoes in with your red, 
your yellow tomatoes, you'll stick it a nice deep orange or red sauce. They don't make they don't make it brown or anything. Yeah. So that's all right. Another um, favorite thing to do with tomatoes, especially if you get the cherry tomatoes, you think, I'll never use all these. Yes, you will. <laughs> you will, because Kathy tells you you will. Put them into a, a, a roasting pan, a glass pan or something, drizzle some olive oil, give them a little sprinkle of salt and pepper, throw a couple of cloves of garlic that are cut up into chunks in there, and roast those on 425, stirring every 5-10 minutes, and they will get so caramely and good. And we just had a, a veggie pizza yesterday. Well, stop it. I'm starting to drool. Yes. I don't want to drool in the air today. It makes a great sauce for a veggie pizza, a <laughs> yeah, flatbread, and really also good. for a pasta. Really, so really good. use your cherry tomatoes. And it smells amazing while it's yeah. roasting in the oven. Now, just, you know, now is the time also to think about next year when you're going to plant tomatoes. Because you want to make sure you don't plant in the same bed. People have made that mistake. We have a neighbor. And we're, we're actually growing stuff at their place this year. But they had great tomatoes the first year. Planted them the second year, terrible. That's what will happen. you got to rotate them. Ideally, every, what, three or four years. Because, you know, tomatoes are susceptible to a lot of blight that gets in the soil. You plant them again the next year, and there's gonna be, they're going to be, they're gonna be you know, attacked by various types of blight. So think about where they can go next year. And then think about what you're going to do to enrich that soil this mm -hmm. fall mm -hmm. so all those nutrients have a chance to incorporate over the course of the winter. And we use our, you know, chicken compost. Uh, it's made from, well, it's made from lots of things. Chicken enhanced. Our chicken, chicken manure, manure helps enhance it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we have other sources as well of lamb or horse manure. But, um, you know, think about that. You want to get that bed ready for tomatoes this fall mm -hmm. uh, before you've got, you're going to plant it, you know, in April or May. Because so. that has to cure... Uh, you can't just add fresh manure next spring and put tomatoes in, and you'll burn and, the... And again, think about saving some seeds. There's nothing more satisfying than cutting open a tomato mm -hmm. across the equator, pulling out those seeds, drying them out. Well, first you ferment them. I've, I've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you, you, you basically save those seeds, and when you, can, you can plant those in March, indoors, under grow lights. And tomatoes, they grow fast. They grow so much faster than mm -hmm. peppers or eggplant. They take off, and then they're ready to go in May. And if you don't have good tomato cages, if you have the, the regular cone-shaped ones, even the, quote, large size ones from the store, use something better. Use cattle panels, and we could tell you more about yeah. that later. Make your own. Yeah. Hey, thanks for joining us, Kathy. Folks, we've been talking with Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks for tuning in to this week's program. Thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Thanks to the stations in Iowa, KHOI, 89.1 FM and KICI, Iowa City, that rebroadcast this program and stations elsewhere around the country that do so as well. You can always sign up for our emails at the FallonForum.com website. Thanks again for joining us. This is Ed Fallon, your host.